All right, looks like we're at time, so we'll go ahead and get started again. Um, this week, we're still in Mark 15. We're going to back up a little bit because last week we were kind of rushed at the end and kind of fast-tracked our way through verses 33 through 41 of the death of Christ. So we're going to backtrack, cover a few little things there, and then move into his burial, then his resurrection, and then on the ending of Mark, the questions that arise from your little marks in your study Bibles that say some of the earliest manuscripts don't include that long ending. Going to look at that, look at some of the evidence for and against, and go from there. And then next week, we're going to be starting a new series. We're going to be going through the Minor Prophets, not all of them. We're not going to be in there for the next year or so, but just hitting a few of them here or there. We're going to start off with Amos, and then from there, may kind of leave it up to you guys if there's any in particular you really want to focus on. More than happy to do that, but just a chance for us to dive into some of those texts that you know, we've read through, but have we really paused and thought about, or have we just kind of skimmed through the book of Amos in one sitting and just kind of check it off the box of our two-year reading plan or something like that? Call it good. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on those. But for any of that, still got a little bit in Mark. We'll begin with the invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So like I said, we're going to be starting back a little bit into verse 33 of Mark 15. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've already hit over this sum, and if you'll remember from last week, I talked about kind of that joke that one of my professors had given of, you know, all the guys are in the prison and they've spent a long time and a new guy comes along and he's awake at night and everyone says, oh, 27, everyone cracks up. Someone says, 63, crack up again. So finally, as time goes on, he asks, you know, why are you just saying out numbers and cracking up? Well, they'd all been there for so long that they got tired of retelling the same jokes over and over they just numbered the jokes, and they'd say, 63, and everyone would know it and start cracking up. So that's being the same type of case he points out for this of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's being just a little short snippet of Psalm 22. And we'll look at that here in a second. But I just got to say, there's, there's another part to that joke. So there's another guy, and he says, uh, 14, and nobody laughs. And they said, what's the deal? And he said, oh, that guy could never tell a joke. I forgot about that. Yeah. It was a really good one. My professor told it all the time as if it was the first time he was ever telling the joke, and it was great. Yeah, so anyway, him quoting here Psalm 22 from the cross. Now, some will point or suspect that our Lord actually recited all the Psalms on the cross. That's definitely a possibility, and that's kind of an open question there. But want to turn to Psalm 22, because a lot of people make a big deal of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just the despair of that. 
but no one really pays too much attention to the rest of Psalm 22 here. So I'm going to read through that and just point out a few things. Starting in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. But then the psalmist kind of changes tune here. There's a sense of trust being built here. Verse 9, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So we have this sense of despair, this crying out of, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But yet, from my mother's womb you have been my God. And so there's this despair, even in our own lives, of why, why is this happening, Lord? But yet we still have that trust of, yet from my birth you have been my God. And so he continues on, I'm not going to read through the rest of it, but, but you, O Lord, do not be far off, O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Continuing on, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And so we have this both and going on here of this despair, but also this trust that even in the midst of all this, he is still faithful. He is still his Lord from birth. And so that's what I want to hit on a little bit of that for Christ on the cross of, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there's still this, you know, you are still faithful. I know what I'm doing. You know, I'm faithfully carrying out what you will. And so we have that here. So just wanted to briefly hit on that. If there's any questions, I'll entertain those. But it was just helpful. One of my professors had given a sermon in class kind of on that theme. And so he goes back of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then goes into all these different areas of trust and faithfulness of the Lord. And so he really highlighted that for us and something I hadn't really thought about too much before. Yeah, Chris. It, this seems like it could be a good litmus test for uh, sort of basic biblical uh, literacy when somebody cites that um, Jesus saying that is proof that he had his moment of doubt mm-hmm. when it's so clearly referring to Psalm 22 and then what where it starts is that, but that it ends up, you know, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen and, mm-hmm. you know, that you don't, in fact, you know, abandon mm-hmm. your own. Yeah. So you just have to either be in complete denial of the fact that he was referring to Psalm 22 or just be in ignorance of it. Because to, to, people I've heard say that and say, well, that's proof that he, he doubted mm-hmm. when, he, when, he, when he said, why, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, all the way throughout. I mean, he knew what was waiting for him. Right, right. And he went on. You know, he set his face towards Jerusalem, knew what was happening, you know, wasn't the victim of all this. And it's a good reminder for us, even as we are imitators of Christ, of, 
you know, all the times throughout all of our lives, those times of doubt of, you know, crying out, you know, why have you forsaken me? In those times of despair that he is faithful, he is still with us. So. Any other thoughts, comments? We had hit on most of this last week, but just wanted to dive in a little bit more on here. And then wanted to spend a little bit of time at the study note on verse 34 here. Just a little bit that kind of struck me at first, and I did some more diving, it made more sense. In 1534, uh, the loud voice, being a crucified man, died of asphyxiation and was quiet at the end. Therefore, Jesus' cry required superhuman effort, which is just interesting. But then that second note within there of, um, from Ambrose, a quote, Christ, in naming God as his God, does so as man. He suffers as a man, and as man, therefore, he is distressed. As man, he weeps. As man, he is crucified. And so, at first, it kind of struck me of, okay, Surely he's not saying he only was crucified as man and not God. Because, you know, even in our hymns, one of our favorite Good Friday hymns, we sing, you know, O sorrow dread, our God is dead. That's in our hymnody there of being able to say that on the cross, God, in fact, did die because of the personal union of Christ there. And we can say that to some extent. But so, just not, not coming to a stance where it's just Jesus as man dying on the cross, which some will claim, and that his, you know, Jesus as God wasn't, he kind of left Jesus as man on the cross there and kind of, you know, separated the two natures at the cross there. Which, of course, wouldn't be the case with Ambrose, because looking back in the history, there's the Arian controversy may be familiar, of Arius coming along saying, well, Jesus was a created being, and so the Father is supreme, then the Son is created, and so he's subservient to the Father. So it caused this whole controversy. He got deposed, sent away, and then the emperor sent a council, or put up a council, and that was the Council of Nicaea, where we get our Nicene Creed. And so from that, they specifically put in of one substance with the Father, the homo-usias language, the one, homo-oneness-usia, the substance. So one essence, one substance with the Father. So Ambrose was a big, wholeheartedly against Arius and the Arian controversy, all that. And so I knew that's not what he was saying, but just they could have expanded probably a little bit on what he was saying and not just kind of left it as, as man he is crucified and just full stop. It could have maybe used a little more, little more explanation there. But there's just something I wanted to note there. If there's any thoughts, just in my read-through, just thought that could be helpful to point that out to not cause any confusion or anything. Nothing? Okay, so that carries us through the rest of the material. We have him breathing his last, and there were women looking at him from a distance, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, young of Joseph and Salome. So then we get into the new material in verse 42. 
And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So evening had come, which remember how they counted days. Evening is the start of the new day, not like over here in the West in, in modern time where day starts you know, in the morning. It was the first thing you do at day. We have to get up and work. Rather, in their time, first thing you do is rest. And so it's just this beautiful different perspective of the day and the ritual of it as you start with rest and then go to work. Anyway, so evening had come, so it would have been still Friday at that point. It was the day of the preparation before the Sabbath, so before Saturday had happened. So then Joseph of Arimathea, he's a member of the council, and so he took courage and went to Pilate. So he asked for the body of Jesus. There's some uh, parallels with Isaiah 53.9 and him receiving the body to the tomb of a wealthy man. All that, And then 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. So apparently this would have, was out of the ordinary for the crucifixion that Christ would have died so quickly. Because remember, one of the soldiers went up to break his legs, he was already dead at that point. So they didn't have to break his legs like the others hanging on the cross. So there's some kind of oddity of just kind of the time frame of his crucifixion here. I didn't do any research to see what kind of the standard was. Didn't want to do much diving on that and read all about the crucifixion and everything. So left that where it was. But something would have been odd about this, that he, Pilate would have been surprised. In verse 45, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And so after class last week, Pastor and I were talking just about the, the weird occurrence of the naked man running through the scene and just how that's really odd in the Gospel of Mark. And pointed out that the linen shroud that Joseph of Arimathea brought was the same Greek word, the same shroud, or the linen cloth that the guy running through the scene would have been wearing. So just a little interesting connection there, being that burial cloth of sorts. So he took, it, took him down from the cross, wrapped him in that shroud, and laid him in a tomb. And so doing a little bit of research on this, it was pretty interesting that uh, Veltz had made the comment that there would have been, in that time, kind of two tomb designs, one more common and then one saved for the elite. And so the more common would have been just the squared entrance, square room, very plain, kind of with shelves in the walls there. And so you put the person, they decompose over time, gather their bones, put them in a box, and put them in these little shelves in the wall. And so much like, you know, go down to New Orleans, you have these huge family tombs where just all the family members go in there. Same type of thing. It would have been like a square door. It would have been, what is he saying? I found this on the web. Oh, thank you, Siri. <laughs> a square door. Wow, okay. 
Anyway, so it would have been just like a couple hundred pound. I don't know why she picked that up, but apparently she did. And so it was just like a few hundred pounds of a stone. It was square, so you couldn't roll it. But it was just placed in front of the tomb just to you know, block out anyone. But then there was the more wealthy kind. It was, I'm going to butcher how it's pronounced, acrosoleum. And so this would have been for the wealthy. And so it would have been arched ceilings, a circular stone to be rolled in front. And so there he, he was saying that it generally would have been only one person in that tomb. So it would have been for a distinguished person or someone of great wealth that they could afford to just have one tomb for them. And so he was actually arguing that, in fact, this would have been the case, that since Joseph of Arimathea was wealthy, he was on the council, member of the council, he was arguing that, in fact, it could have been this tomb where no one had been laid, meaning just one person being in there. And then that's when the giant, you know, stone that was, was he saying, roughly like 3,000 pounds would have been rolled in front. So that was his... No, I just, uh, you, you pretty well covered it, but mm-hmm. archaeologists have covered this so thoroughly mm-hmm. that it had to be around the stone, and it had to weigh at least two to 3,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. And it was rolled in the tomb slightly uphill. That means anybody opening that tomb would have to roll that stone uphill, which would be impossible for yeah. just one or two people. Which will also kind of help substantiate, possibly. Commentators don't, didn't say this, but you know, kind of being for one person, you know, once you kind of seal it up, you're not going to be really wanting to roll that stone up and down each time you know, Grandma Sue passes away. You're not going to want to do that. So, which is this, which points again. We'll get this in a minute, but you know they were wondering how they're going to get the stone rolled away because it would have been, like you said, thousands of pounds, and you know a few women going to the tomb. What are they going to do with that? So, it's just some interesting insights there that I thought were worth sharing. I hadn't really heard any of that before. Is there any comments, questions? In verse 43, what does it mean that um, he was also himself looking for the kingdom of God? Oh, in the study note? Respect a member. Oh, looking for the king. I mean, here it would have been, yeah, a believer in that, you know, he had found, the note says he had found hope in the Messiah. So looking for that kingdom of God, you know a follower of that, I would think. And that's a big thing, a big thing for Veltz that he points to of this reign and rule of the kingdom of God and kind of that being a major mark and theme according to him. And so that could be some of that impetus there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what council was he a member of? Oh, St. Hedrick, okay. It was good to have Pastor. Thanks. With Joseph and Nicodemus, you've got these Pharisees, mm-hmm. right, who have, uh, in some respects, turned toward Jesus. 
lights. Mm-hmm. And of course, since their names are known and listed in these positive lights, almost certainly became Christians and mm-hmm. well known amongst them. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? So moving on to verse or chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, which would have been likely Saturday night, is kind of the assumption here, you know, after sundown, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us? from the entrance of the tomb. So likely Saturday night, you know, early evening in that time frame, they gone, they bought spices in order that they may go and prepare the body, which again would have been, I mean, looking at his crucifixion, just a gruesome sight. It's not, you know, man dying of natural causes and putting some spices on, but it was just, I mean, extreme act of love and compassion for our Lord that they would go and do such an act out of honor for him. You know, we had previously of Jesus being anointed and saying, you know, she's preparing me for burial. So we have that preparation before he had died. And then now here, after he had died, these women coming to, that they might prepare his body for burial then as well. So they had bought spices very early on the first day. So when the sun had risen, hence where we get sunrise service at that time frame, we went to the tomb, and they were wondering again, as we had mentioned earlier, of how they were going to roll the stone away. And looking up, they saw that, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large, as Mark records. So they'd seen that it was rolled away. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man, sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. So this is kind of an odd odd thing here, why the angel, because with all the other gospel accounts it being an angel here, why Mark chose, chose to put in young man and describe him that way. So there's different thoughts on this, but one interesting thing is, again, the young man running naked across the screen, you know, from stage right to stage left, we had, we, it's kind of assumed or thought in church history that it's Mark himself. So that he was kind of putting himself in there and recording that scene from him. And then kind of being the same word used here of the young man clothed in white. So possibly some kind of parallel there. Again, just Mark is very odd and just all of his wording, his portrayal of Jesus is, you know, a lot different than the other Gospels. He's a lot more abrupt. We'll especially see that here at the ending of just boom, 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 all these different things happening. And so it's just kind of par, par for the course for Mark of just being a little bit different than the other Gospels of him focusing, again, not on the humanity of the angel, but these human characteristics that we see of him. So he was sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. So they were alarmed, as anyone would be during this time. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, 
who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So we have just that wonderful comfort. Don't be afraid. We have the same thing at Christ's birth, the announcement of his birth of all the angels. You know, do not be afraid. Or with Mary, don't be afraid. To Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. All these things with Christ appearing to his disciples, you know, in the locked room and everything. Don't be afraid. So we have this great absolution, if you will, of this, you, you don't have anything to fear. You know, you're seeing the divinity, the holiness of God, you know, shown forth here in these bright white robes, this glorious angel here, but you don't have anything to fear. Instead, be, be joyous instead. They said, he is risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. I just have to tell this story that my one professor, Dr. Masaki, he's from Japan. He's very thick accent sometimes, so you can't hardly hear him, and he's very soft-spoken. And so if you don't sit in the front of the class, good luck hearing him talk about the confessions. So anyways, he was telling this story of this, this church in Australia, and they wanted all this beautiful stained glass at their church. So they wanted three different panels, the one being do not be afraid, second one, he is risen, the third, he is not here. So they were going to do this beautiful artwork there. It was going to be the 100th anniversary for the church, you know, this great celebration. But then time, came time for the committee to meet and decide, well, who's the artist going to be that we're going to have to do this? Well, as we all know, there's going to be division of, well, I want this guy, I want this guy. And so one of the people, or one of the families, some of the big donors, pulled their money and said, we're not going to fund this because we didn't get the artist that we wanted. So they couldn't afford to do all three of the stained glass. They could only afford to do two. And so at the church, he says, on one side it says, do not be afraid, he is not here. They left out, he is risen. And so right above the altar where the Lord's Supper is going to be, do not be afraid, he's not here. And so that's the story, and that's what he's sticking to of that. So, I mean, just an absurd story, but funny nonetheless of all the ones to leave out of he's risen. Yeah. Anyways, so the angels include he is risen in here, of see the place where, he, where they laid him. Verse 7, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So again, we have this specification of and Peter. And we had seen previously Peter's denial three times. And here we see kind of a truncated version of kind of the redemption of Peter. You know, in John's gospel, we have Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. So we have that threefold absolution of Peter, and that redemption of him. So we don't have that spelled out here in Mark, but here we have <clears throat> the angel specifically saying, and Peter, to say, you know, he hasn't forsaken everything. He's not left out of the fold because of what he did, but go and tell the disciples and Peter along with them that Christ is risen. So we had that renewing of Peter into the role of disciple here. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid, which we all probably would have done 
we saw that the tomb was empty. Some white guy, or guy in a white robe saying, he's not here, he's risen, seeing an angel. We probably wouldn't want to tell the whole world of what happened, especially because they wouldn't probably believe us. You know, after all, we're just the women during this time, they didn't have the influence of the trustworthiness of their eyewitness account. So they, went, they went away and they were afraid and they said nothing to anyone. And that's the end for some people. Here we get into the debate of the quote-unquote long ending of Mark. And so you'll see in your study Bibles that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16 verse 9 to 20. And so the opinion of the people for the Lutheran study Bible is that Mark actually ends at verse 8 here, for they were afraid. Now, there's some manuscripts that include verses 9 through 20, but it's to such an extent that they have to, or there's not as much evidence according to them that, you know, was original, so that's why they put those double brackets in there in that specific note. So some of the debate arising, or some of the evidence here that some will use is, so if you recall, previously we had talked about a couple of those big-name manuscripts of Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. So those are kind of the two gold standards, some of the, most, the earliest, most complete ones that we have. And so anytime there's a lot of, or there's question regarding, okay, should we favor this manuscript or this one, they kind of go with those two. and They kind of favor those because of how complete they are and kind of the well-known respect of them. And so those two don't include this verses 9 through 20. So a lot of people will point to that and say, you see, it's not, it's not original. Therefore, you know, put it out. But we'll actually look here. So one of them, Vaticanus here, I'll just point and then we'll hand it around. So there's three columns of the text. So they would start on the left column, middle, and then the right. And so we'll see just this huge gap there. That's included. And so one of the journal articles I was reading on this, because I don't have a strong, there's some guys that are very strong, this one or this. Anyone that says it's absolutely this or absolutely this, there's still a little bit of debate, depending on who you ask. And so the guy who is in favor of including this longer ending, he points to this manuscript, the Vaticanus, who people on the side that say, you know, it shouldn't be included, they use that in support of their stance. But he points to this huge blank on the, in the second column and onto the third. He points out that in the rest of the entire New Testament, they always include all three columns on the spacing. And so they'll just start the next one right by it and carry on from there. So this is the only place in the New Testament that there is that huge gap. So he'd done the math. I don't know who sat around and calculated all this, but all the Greek letters that would have been needed for verses 9 through 20, using his spacing of how he wrote, the scribe wrote this, you could have fit it in if you just shrunk it a little bit, and all kinds of math. Again, guys that are a lot better at just sitting in basements counting letters and doing the more tedious stuff than I'd want to do. But so they point to that and say, you know, you could have fit it in there. Anyways, so there's debate on both sides there. But Nestle Allen, the Greek New Testament that we use, which again is 
a composite of different manuscripts. Because even though there's, I mean, great, I'm trying to think of the word. The manuscripts are almost exact in 99% of areas. There may be a letter left out here or there, or, you know, if you're going to be copying an entire New Testament, you're going to be making a few mistakes, copying a S that's supposed to be an O or something like that. So there's differences in that. Some people, the higher critics, are going to point to these little scribal errors and these different manuscripts and the differences and say, well, you see, you don't even know what the, old, what the New Testament is. What's scripture? You know, there's no complete work. Well, there's no doctrinal issues in those differences. It's not like you leave out one letter in this manuscript and it says you're saved by grace through faith. But if you include it, then well, you're saved only by works. You know, there's not going to be any of these doctrinal differences that they want to try to argue because it's just not there. It's going to be, you know, is it a future tense or a past tense here? Not going to be a big deal with that. Uh, have any of the church fathers commented on this um, situation with the the early manuscripts? Some have it and some don't, and how, how, early, how the earliest manuscripts have it. Yeah, so let me, so where was it? Who was it? I can't remember the church father exactly. But there was someone in the 4th century that had noted um, that there was some debate regarding if it's original or not. Again, can't remember the church father. But then you also have Irenaeus, you know, in like 130, the 2nd century time frame, who quotes Mark 16, verse 19 in his writing and just doesn't make a note of it. So they quoted it. So they must have had a manuscript that showed it that, that we don't have. Mm-hmm. So he, that's the assumption there is that, you know, if he's quoting it, there would have been at least something floating around there that, you know, they would have just not well, made a note of it. that's kind of our evidence, if you will, that... Yeah, I mean, again, there's going to be yeah. different manuscripts for all these things. And so there's evidence on both sides of... Well, some church fathers note that there's some debate going on. Luther, in his translation of the Bible, he puts it in there, kind of no questions, doesn't make any note of it. And same thing, I think, with the Vulgate as well. They just include it, the Latin Vulgate. Uh, the Vulgate includes it, that's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's evidence on both sides for that. And again, anyone that's trying to point to these manuscript differences, we're going to look at the content of the ending of Mark and especially Mark 16, 16 of whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. That's obviously big in our baptismal liturgy and our doctrine of baptism. We quote that one a lot. But, I mean, just look at First Peter three twenty one of baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you. You know, it's not like here in Mark 16, if that... If Mark 16, 16 is taken out, our whole doctrine of baptism is down the drain with it. It's the entirety of Scripture that is proclaiming that same truth, and this is just but one of those areas that proclaims that same truth. So even on that case, too, in this the long ending, if we'll put it that way, there's not going to be any new doctrine that it puts forward that we're going to be holding to that's not other places in Scripture. And so again, it is an open question. There is freedom to kind of decide. 
for yourself of which is the case. I'm more on the side that it is at least probably one of the other, one of the apostles or someone, you know, very early on recording these same things there. Again, not some, you know, 5th century guy just tacking this on to have a nice little bow on the ending that some may try to argue. And one final thing before I get to your point, Chris. At the very end of verse 8, it says in our English, for they were afraid. And so in the Greek, it's the word, the last word is for. And so it's just kind of a very odd ending of like, they were afraid for. And then just stops. And so you don't really, you don't see that anywhere else. Of It's just kind of this cliffhanger of, and now what? You know, which some argue, you know, Mark is, again, odd in his writing, and he's not like some of the other writers. He's got little quirks here and there throughout his book. And so that could be another kind of an open, you know, and now going forth from there. So some point to that, but just a little interesting ending. Yeah, Chris. Um, just on the... On the point that it didn't add any new doctrine, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if this would be considered new doctrine, but is it mentioned anywhere else in Scripture that um, that um, um, those who cast out demons in my name will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them? Um, yeah, so we actually see that in Acts 28 with Paul. Oh, really? Paul. He picks up—we'll actually turn to that. Once oh, that's right, Paul. You read my mind, you were, you were an audience plant. I was going to go there, so. Acts 28. It's 28, 2 to 6. Paul's at Malta there. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled the fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So, bit him. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he, had es- though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. And so we have that that one instance there of, you know, this viper biting him and them just waiting for him to drop dead as a result. But again, Paul had a mission that he was going forth to spread the gospel to the corners of the earth. And so the Lord Again, as Christ had promised them, he will, you know, no serpent will, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. The same type of thing of that protection. Mm -hmm. I'd have to, yeah, I can't remember when exactly that was in the, I always get those, con- the acts, just the timeline and all the people who's joining who here, where, yeah. 
Anyway, so we do see that fulfillment of that there. And we'll get to that here in a second, looking at these other specific signs. If there's any other questions on just... The only thing I notice is that Peter, you made a comment about Peter, but isn't it specific that Peter is mentioned because he's on the road to Emmaus, he's also the one that brings the Gentiles in, or God tells them to bring them in, mm-hmm. and he's also the one that says, whosoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven, so he's given that commission as well. So just point, is your point of naming Peter by name, just kind of elevating him to this Well, it, not only elevating him, but it makes it very specific that, hey, he's witnessing to this. Oh, absolutely, yeah giving credibility to him and his message later on as he goes forth that, you know, he was there at this, at his resurrection, or, you know, all these things. He was a personal eyewitness. Any there questions or comments on that? So, let's see. For, oh, casting out. Again, just kind of a little bit, we're not really, I don't think it's mentioned anywhere else that you can, the seven demons, let's see, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd have to flip there, And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. That's the reference in Luke. Yeah, in Luke 8. And it's elsewhere that Jesus talks about Mm -hmm. the house that's swept of the seven demons. So again, we're not really told kind of the specifics of the details of that. I I don't believe... Anywhere, really. But again, just kind of, okay, Mary Magdalene, I mean, everyone seemed to be named Mary during that time. So even Mary Magdalene, okay, which one? Well, the one who had seven demons have been cast out. You know, further explain. Okay, this is exactly the one we're talking about because everyone and their mother was named Mary, seems like, as we even see just in Mark 16 here. So yeah, kind of further explaining, okay, who are we talking about? Anything else as we get into the text here? Okay. So verse 9. And when he, arose, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. So there we get the first instance of them not believing this account here. So they, she came, bore witness about the things, but they would not believe it. So then we get verse 12, a very, very abbreviated version of the road to Emmaus. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. They went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. So again, Mark, he's just not wanting to spend a lot of time of, this is what happened, here's all the details. She told them, they didn't believe. 
told these guys, they told them they didn't believe. And now he's just moving on, so just very quick pace here, kind of hitting that point of their lack of belief. Verse 14, Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he'd risen. So we just get this wonderful image of you know, Christ appearing to the disciples of, what do you mean you didn't believe? Like, I sent all these messengers, I told you all along, that I was going to die and rise. And you still didn't believe them. Whenever the tomb was empty, an angel appeared to them. What do you mean you didn't get it? So he's chastising them of, he's giving it to them of, you know, your hardness of heart, because he hadn't believed that I was risen. Verse 15, and he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. After these signs, and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So we have, again, kind of the great commission here of going to all the, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. And we have our favorite passage of baptism, Mark 16, 16, makes into our baptismal liturgy that the pastor says. And then all of these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons, which again, we even see that in our baptismal, lit- the old baptismal liturgy of Luther's old liturgy that he had, that he had written. We have a little mini exorcism, as they say. The pastor says, depart you unclean spirit and make room for the Holy Spirit, or something to that effect. And so you have this pastor just looking at this baby in a pretty white robe, saying, depart you unclean spirit, make room for the Holy Spirit. So we do have this actual exorcism of, Depart Satan and make room for the Holy Spirit here. So we even have this casting out of demons, not to the extent that you know Hollywood puts it of, you know, someone climbing up on the walls and the ceilings and twisting their head 360 degrees or anything like that, but nevertheless still this exorcism, you would say, this casting out of demons. So they will speak in new tongues. So we see this at Pentecost, these new languages. They will be speaking. Again, all this in service of the gospel going forth and proclaim the gospel to all the ends of the earth. They will cast out demons, baptizing them, speaking in new tongues or new languages, being able to speak their language, proclaim the gospel in their, in their native tongue to them. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. We have these serpents of protecting Paul on his mission and possibly other times throughout the spreading of the gospel during the apostolic time of what would have happened if Paul would have been bitten by a serpent. You know, would kind of cut short his missionary journey of spreading the gospel. So we have the Lord protecting those whom he sent to spread the gospel. Likewise, if they drink any poison, it will not hurt them. We have the same language of kind of at the Lord's Supper. We have originally with the poison protecting the outer from, you know, 
poison entering in. But even then, at the Lord's Supper, we are partaking of Christ. So that indwelling, eating and drinking his body and blood, that medicine of immortality, as the fathers have put it. We have this protection externally and internally, this indwelling of Christ in us through the eating and drinking of his body and blood. So it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Again, all of these things in service of that gospel being carried out to the ends of the earth here. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So again, we get again very truncated version of all these events that are taking place. That after he had spoken them, again, throughout these 40 days, he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, as the other Gospels put it, as our creeds put it. It's Christ ascending and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And they went out and preached everywhere. So they followed his great commission to go out to the ends of the earth. So they preached while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. What a marvelous image at the end here of, so they went out, they did as the Lord commanded, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message. So he's not saying, hey, see ya, I'm going to be up here, you guys go do, do your work, and I'll see you at the end. He's, saying, he's with them, while the Lord worked with them. So all the way through the proclamation of the gospel throughout the ends of the earth, protecting Paul, protecting Peter, all of them as they go forth, working with them, giving them signs that others may believe in that gospel. We have the Lord present all throughout the apostolic time of sending forth the gospel, all throughout time and even today of the Lord working with those whom he has called to spread that gospel throughout. That he is present in the word, he's present in the sacraments, delivering his gifts and being present and at work each and every week. You know, we may not have these big casting out demons and these external signs and all these great things that we try to, or we kind of long to have, and some churches try to convince us that they have these great powers to do all these things. But what greater signs and wonders are taking place Sunday morning here and every altar of, you know, may not be casting out demons and having people screaming and falling on, you know, people standing up from the wheelchairs and all these crazy things that go on on TV. We have the Lord present and delivering his gifts and giving these great internal blessings to us through these means. So just what a wonderful gift that is that. Where two or three are gathered, there he is, delivering his gifts, being with those whom he has called, working for the gospel to go out to all the ends of the earth. So. Are there any contemplations or anything? Don't want to get into the new material of Amos and all that. May just head out a few minutes early, but I'm here spending time. Any questions? Anything on Mark? Any lasting Burning questions before we leave, Mark? 
Well, it was great. I wish I could have been here for the whole time of Mark, being start to finish, but Vicar Doty did a great job, and the pastor in the interim, and then so three different people have kind of been teaching you through Mark. So luckily with the minor prophets, they're going to be a lot shorter, and so I'll at least get through a few of those with you guys before I leave, so we'll have some continuity there, but anything else? Alrighty. The Lord be with you.